Thank you, Daisy, for reading the word of the Lord to us today. I love the way that Daisy reads how she is really energetic in the narrative portions to get the voices just right and makes me think her kids must have great bedtime story times. Well, good morning. How are you? Good, good, mostly good. Did anyone bring any kids today? Like, and they're in the, yeah, okay, great. And they're in the elementary area. We're really excited for that. This morning I did a little survey in the 9 o'clock asking if any of them had switched from the 11 to the 9 to allow for kids to come at the 11. And I had many hands up. So we're really, uh, many have switched to the 11, from the 11 to the 9 so that you could be here at the 11. So we're excited about that kind of dynamic in our church. People making decisions based on benefiting others. So that's great. This is, we're in the Believe series, and I, every time that bumper comes up, I think a little about that, that key. And, and why is the symbol of the Believe series a key? Well, it's because the beliefs and practices and virtues that we're talking about in, these, in this series, in this transformational journey, they're a key to unlocking the kind of life that God has for you. God has an incredible life planned for you, but these things are key in seeing that come to be. If I'm going to do a quick review for you, I just want to talk about the last two weeks. We're in our third week of the Believe series. The first week we talked about who is God, and I was speaking in that, that one, and we, the statement of belief that we were uh, saying there was, I believe the God of the Bible is the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I believe the God of the Bible is the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that was that week. And then last week, Pastor Kurt uh, talked about God not just being God, but being a personal God. And so the question of the day was, does God care about me? And the belief statement was, I believe God is involved in and cares about my daily life. And now we're on to our third week. And in order to find out what we believe, we're going to do our Kahoot survey real quick. Kahoot .it is where you, we'd love for you to go. And, uh, and when you go there, you can uh, enter the number in for our Kahoot survey. So, um, yeah, we'll see if that's coming up here quick. So, Kahoot IT, and we'll see what we believe. Are we, are we good back there, guys? Yeah. Awesome. Okay, here's the number, 37953. 379. Five, three. And if you enter that number in, you can play along. And we'll do our survey pretty quick. Okay, look, people are coming up. That's good. I'm always excited about this survey thing because we've, we've had, I think, almost 150 people do our online survey at our website, uh, which is sort of covers sort of all of these categories that we're talking about over these weeks. And, uh, but this is sort of one just to refresh us about what are some of the questions that really come into an understanding of, of uh, the weekly topic. So here, here comes the questions. I believe I will inherit eternal life because of what Jesus has done for me. I believe I will inherit eternal life because of what Jesus has done for me. And the answers range from the red triangle, I don't believe this, to the, and then goes to the blue Diamond, I'm not sure I believe this. Then the yellow circle, I believe, but occasionally experience doubt. And then the green square, I believe this 100%. So those are the answers, and I see that already 40 of you have responded, so this is great. And here's our answers. Oh, 
We had answers. I think it was 33 it said the green, but I think we jumped to the next question. All right, that's fine. We'll just, we got most of that. I saw it in a glimpse. Okay, let's go to the next one. I believe nothing I do or have done can earn my salvation. And uh, again, from the red triangle all the way up to the green uh, square, what do, you, what do you believe? And please, answer honestly, because that's the way that we grow. Half of this is for your own benefit, because you're saying, hey, I'm, I'm having to face that question again. And whether I believe it, or I'm not sure if I believe it, occasionally experience doubt, or, or I do believe it. So 95% say that they believe nothing I do or have done can earn my salvation. Okay, or, but some doubt occasionally. Okay. I believe salvation comes only through Jesus. I believe salvation comes only through Jesus. And there we go. So 93% believe that. 5% uh, occasionally experience doubt. And one, or 2% not sure that they believe that. That's great. Okay? And then the last one. There's one more, right? Yes. So I believe people are saved because of what Jesus did, not because of what they do. I believe people are saved because of what Jesus did, not because of what they do. And again, 90% believe that, 100%. And then 5% occasionally doubt, uh, 2% not sure, 2% uh, don't believe that. Okay? Great. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you for your participation. Now, Next week, we're going to change things up with the Kahoot a little bit. It's Thanksgiving. We're going to do a bit of a quiz game where you can compete against each other to be the best. <laughs> does, does that sound like church? I'm not sure. But it'll be fun. And uh, I think it'll be a, a good thing even when we have visitors on Thanksgiving to have some fun with that Kahoot app, which we're just getting familiar with. But we know many of you who've used it for many years know it can do way more. So next week, we're going to have a lot of fun with it and um, when we do it. So... The key question for today, today's the topic is about salvation. If you've got your Believe book, now if you don't have one, there's one free for every family, so you can grab one on the way out. But if you've got your Believe book, you know that today's topic is salvation. And the question that comes with it is this, how do I have a relationship with God? How do I have a relationship with God? Now if you've ever had a relationship, you know it takes two to tango. It takes two people, uh, each doing their part. So I first want to talk about what is God's part in having a relationship with us. And the first thing you need to know is that God wants to have a relationship with you. God wants to have a relationship with you. When I was in school, if you were going to do a book report, there was a couple ways to do it. One was to read the whole book, make notations, and then do the book report. The other one, which I will say many of my friends did, and I'm not sure if I ever did, but I, I'm not trying to be sanctimonious or righteous here, but I just don't remember doing it, was the other method is you read the back of the book. There's usually a description on the back of the book of what the book is about in a couple paragraphs. Then you maybe look at a little bit in the first chapter and a little bit at the end of the chapter, sort of see, and then you write a book report. And so I feel bad for all those teachers who get these terrible book reports from people who have never read the book, but who are faking that they've read the book. And if you did that with the Bible, here's what would happen. Well, there's nothing written in the back, so you'd really have to lean into the first couple chapters and the last couple chapters to see where did, it, where did it start, where did it go. And where does it start? God is in, the, in a garden that he has prepared 
to have fellowship with people. God in a garden with people. And they have a great relationship. Okay, let's see what happens at the end of the book. And you go to the last two chapters of the book, Revelation 21, 22, you go there and you're like, oh, God is in a garden with people having great relationship with him. So you write your book report. The Bible is nothing more than a book about God in a garden having a relationship with people. There's no highs, there's no lows, there's no drama. Nothing happens in the Bible. It's just people living in a garden with God and they have a great relationship with him. I don't know why the book needs to be very long. And you get an F on that paper. Because between the first two chapters and the last two chapters of the Bible, things go nuts. It's crazy. All over the map, what happens? And the part that Daisy read this morning is the, where it begins to happen in Genesis chapter 3. So if you didn't read to the third chapter, you wouldn't understand how everything changed. And especially how it changed in regard to us relating to God. So in Genesis chapter 3, we, we see what happens. God has given uh, humanity only one way to reject him. He's only given them one way to reject him. And that is there's a tree. There's many trees in the garden. They're tending the garden. They're working in the garden. It's a joy. It's wonderful. They only have good thoughts towards each other. There's no sin in the world. But there's a tree, and it's the knowledge of good and evil. They already have experiential knowledge of good, but evil's not a thing in their equation. They're just really enjoying their life. Can you imagine what it's like to only have good thoughts all the time? I mean, a lot of us struggle for good thoughts, don't we? We're trying to fight off anxiety. We're trying to fight off anger. We're trying to fight off uh, lustful thoughts. We're trying to think all sorts of different thoughts that aren't good thoughts that we're trying to... No, good thoughts, good thoughts, good thoughts. Can you imagine if you didn't have that struggle at all? You just woke up and you're like, life is great. I love my spouse. I'm living in this garden. And God loves me. And I have a great relationship with him. And my job is naming animals. and working, you know, eating fruit. Awesome. But there's one tree. There's one way to reject God, and only one. And uh, it reminds me of friends I had uh, when I used to live up uh, in a different town in Nippon, Saskatchewan. And when I lived there, I, I worked with a really great couple named Keith and Nancy. And Keith and Nancy uh, were like really hospitable people. So they would, I would often go to their house, and Nancy would say to me, Help yourself to anything. Just raid the fridge. Our house is your house. And, you know, you just have the run of the place. And, and, and when she was saying this to me the one time, she just said, Oh, just Keith's cereal is on top of the fridge. The oatmeal crisp, that's Keith's cereal, so don't, don't eat that. But everything else is deep. So, um, anyhow, I was visiting there and helping myself to whatever's in the fridge. I, got, I did this, you know, many times in a week, and I just got so used to being there. And uh, I must have had a bowl of oatmeal crisp along the way. I don't remember the whole moment, but then it became sort of this, Nancy had to talk to me and say, you took some of the oatmeal crisp. There's only one rule in the house, and you broke the one rule. Like, you can't eat the oatmeal crisp. And I was like, oh, I, sorry, I'm not paying attention. I didn't do it on whatever. I gave whatever my excuse was. I didn't do it on purpose, but okay, I will not eat the oatmeal crisp. I promise I'll never eat the oatmeal crisp. 20 years later, actually, this uh, um, a year ago, 
I went and stayed with Keith and Nancy. Again, they're, they're in a different community. I'm in a different community. I haven't, you know, raided their fridge for 20 years. And uh, I got to stay at their house, and it was really great. And Nancy says, hey, make yourself at home. Have anything you want in the fridge. Don't touch the oatmeal crisp. <laughs> 20 years later, and this time I complied. Only one rule. If there's only one tree amongst groves and groves and forests of trees full of fruit that you can eat, but there's one tree you can't eat, when you eat from that tree, it's pretty much clear what you're, the message you're sending. There's only one way to reject God, and they did it. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They, re, they were rejecting God's vision for their lives. Of course, the serpent was part of that whole process. Right? Did God really say, you know, putting doubt in their minds? And no, God's holding out on you. You're trusting in God. But you know what? You shouldn't trust God because God's, he's God, if you eat from that tree, you'll be like God. Wouldn't you like to know the knowledge of evil as well as good? And so they rejected following God and embraced uh, Wanting to be like God. Wanting to be God themselves. Who's in charge here? Who's, who's the one? Are we under God or are we God? If we can be like God, why not? And they rejected God's vision for their lives. So there's two big results out of this. Two big results. Now, Daisy read some of the other very personal targeted judgments that come for, for the snake who'll crawl, crawl on, his, his ground, on the ground all his life. And then, of course, there's that whole thing, which is a reference to Jesus about uh, bruising a heel and being crushed by that same heel, the head being crushed to the snake. You know, that's, that's, that's foreshadowing about Jesus. Then you've got the husband who has to labor in, in physical toil, uh, trying to get food out of the ground when there's thorns competing for that. Uh, same moisture and, and space on the ground and all that stuff. And then there's the woman who has, will have pain in the labor of giving birth. It's like, oh, all these different things. But those are significant. But I want to talk about the two probably biggest outcomes of choosing to reject God's plan for their life. And that was sin and death. Sin and death. So let's talk about sin first. If you just got your ideas about sin from TV commercials... This is what you think about sin. Try this chocolatey dessert. It's practically sinful. Right? It's like the delicious things in life are sin. Right? <laughs> and, you know, if, just say this. If your only temptation in life, if your only sin in life is chocolate, I can't relate to you. Because I have way more problems than that. I mean, I'm also tempted by chocolate. But I'm also tempted in way more areas. So if you just took it from commercials, you'd say, well, sin just seems like sort of trite and light and no big deal, uh, when it is uh, one of the biggest deals in history, in the universe of all time. So it's a rejection of God's leadership in our lives. It's a rejection of, of him as God. So sin describes an act Like, if you do something wrong, you could say, well, that was sin, right? I sinned against another person, or I sinned against God. You could could describe it because an acts are sin. But I think even more describes a tendency. Um, Isaiah said that we're like sheep who've gone our own way, not like sheep who follow a shepherd. We're sheep that just scatter. I don't know the nature of sheep herding, but it sounds like we're the kind of sheep that don't follow 
and actually reject the leadership of the shepherd. It says, we've gone our own way. This is, but this isn't just an act, but it's a power introduced into our lives, and it's an evil power in our lives. Uh, Paul called the result of human sin, he called, the result was, he said, now we are slaves to sin. So it's an oppressive evil power in our lives that we've become slaves to sin. The sin, um, the sin, like you take the word sin, there's a big, I always think there's a big I in the middle. If you don't know what sin is, you just think I. It's just putting I at the middle of your life, like I in the center. I, the whole universe, trying to make the whole universe revolve around me, my, trying to make my whole world about me. That's what sin is. So it manifests in selfishness. And, and, uh, and of, of course, if I'm in the center of my world, then God can't be the center of my world. And so God's not in his rightful place that he deserves as the originator of life, as the creator, as the one who gave us life. But I'm trying to take that place. And that's, what, that's, what, that's one way to, to look at what sin really is. So um, the, the thing about this sin nature is that it's inherited. So it wasn't just Adam and Eve that suddenly had a sin nature, but everyone who was born from Adam and Eve and all the descendants, they have a sin nature as well. And so you might say, oh, I'm not sure. Some people maybe not. Well, I don't know if you've ever had kids, but one thing I noticed from the get-go is they really think it's all about themselves. They have the big I operating in their lives. And it's like, you know, you'd say, oh, don't say that about little innocent children. Well, I have children, and they are cute. I fully agree with that. They're absolutely cute. In fact, they're even cute when they're doing dastardly things. You believe that? That combo is really hard to, to discipline, I find it. So we have a three-year-old, and uh, she's cute. And she's cute when she does good, and she's cute when she does evil. We have a rule. This is our rule, my wife and I. One of us can laugh and enjoy the cute as long as the other one has a sober, stern face and is willing to discipline. So that's the deal. So if we're sitting on the couch and in between is our three-year-old and she does something wrong and she looks towards a parent to see what kind of reaction is, you're the stern one, right? You got, that's your assignment. So if she looks towards me, I'm like, hey, we don't do that in this house. Hey, you know, whatever, you know, the response is. And my wife on the other side has got her hand over her mouth and she's just laughing and she can't believe it. She's enjoying it, right? But then, of course, she'll shift her attention and now it's her turn and then I'm laughing. And anyhow, it's sort of crazy. We inherited it. We inherited this sin nature. So no one is born into relationship with God. None of us are born into relationship with God. You aren't born and that's already there. There's already... This, this issue in our lives. So I talked to you, it said sin was the one thing, but the other one is death. Now, there's two forms of death that come out of the sin in, in the book of Genesis. Um, the first is physical death. So God said, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And the serpent said, you, no, you won't. And then they don't die. Was the serpent right? No. They did die. But the death was an immediate but it was surely coming. So, how do they die? Well, they had access to the tree of life. So, my understanding of things would be, if they could be in the garden, if they were with God, they had that perfect relationship, they never ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but they could eat from the tree of life, they would live. They wouldn't physically die. 
But now, that was taken away from them because they were, they were not allowed in the garden anymore after that. So physical death was coming for them. They would, go, they would get old and they would physically die. But there's another kind of death that I think is, is uh, just as important and maybe more so, and that's spiritual death. So physical death, what is it? It's the separation of your soul from your body. So I and you are a soul, but you have a body. And someday your soul will be separated from this dwelling that it's in. That's physical death. What's spiritual death? It's when your soul is separated from God. Being separated from God is, 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 is a second death. It's a spiritual death. And so both of these come into play because of the disobedience in the, in the garden. A separation from God. No more tree of life, physical death, but no more intimate relationship with God. And if that becomes a permanent condition, then that's, that's spiritual death. So is it hopeless? Is God done with us? I mean, God's desire was to have relationship with us, and we see the garden and have that happening in the first few chapters, and we see it again in the garden in the, in the last few chapters. What, is, what's, is it just misery all the way through? And then is, is that last chapter just not a hope that we have anymore? And 2 Peter 3.9 tells us a little bit about God's desire for us now in this time. 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So God doesn't want anyone to experience uh, that spiritual death, that separation from him, but he wants people to come to repentance, which is a change of mind and a change of life. It's a full 180-degree change in our life to come back into relationship with God. And all of human history is just one great big circle, right? Started in a garden, then sin came in, the fall, and all those different dynamics. But history is really just telling us how God is restoring his original vision for us, bringing us back into that relationship. So I want to just share three related pictures from God's plan to restore relationship with us. The first one is in the Garden of Eden. Once they sin, something happens within them. Now, I, I imagine some of these things would have been the dynamic. So if, I only have, if I'm Adam and I have good thoughts towards Eve, only good thoughts towards Eve, and now I've sinned, and now I have the knowledge of evil, and suddenly I have some bad thoughts towards Eve, in fact, maybe some nasty thoughts, mean thoughts, all sorts of different thoughts, manipulative thoughts. I have these thoughts. Hope, probably I'm smart enough to realize, oh, but she has these thoughts too. And what enters into them, the Bible tells us they were naked and not ashamed. There's no shame in their relationship whatsoever. But now shame comes in, in spades, into their relationship. And, and the first thing they do is they, they hide themselves in two different ways. One, they put clothes on. They've never had clothes on. So they sew for themselves fig, uh, clothing out of fig leaves. I guess that's what was available, so that's what they did. Fig leaf clothing to cover their nakedness. Because there's a, a shame factor now. In fact, there's a great big new possibility. Rejection is on the table now. And then the second hiding is that they just hid in the bushes because they were hiding from God. So there's a shame factor there. Now, guilt and shame, are, are real, they come with sin, right? Guilt is, guilt is feeling bad for what you've done and shame is feeling bad for who you are. 
And suddenly they're just downloaded into their lives. And so what do they do? They hide. And then we're still doing it today. Not sewing fig leaf clothing, but we're still hiding. Why? Because rejection's still on the table. The reality is because sin is in our lives because there are reasons why we feel guilty legitimately. We know not everything is quite right with us. And we really wonder if people really knew how we're not quite right, how we're broken by sin, that they would reject us. And so we hide, or we, we use our words to, to put out a different image. We spin things. We put on a mask, or we pretend to be who people hope, want us to be, to please them. Because if they found out who we really are, it wouldn't please them. And then would they reject us? Would they, could they possibly love us if they knew how broken we really were. Now God comes into that fig leaf hiding in the bushes moment. Where are you? Adam, where are you? He knows the answer. He's not looking for information. He's asking the question for Adam and Eve's sake. They say, we're hiding in the bushes. We're hiding. We're, we're, we, we were ashamed because we're naked. And God does something. He he, um, he replaces their clothing <laughs> with better clothing. Now, uh, when I was in high school, I had, my older brother had a Yamaha motorbike, and I sort of claimed it as mine while he was away at college, so I just drove it everywhere, and uh, along the way, I made a purchase of a, of a leather jacket because I thought, you know, a leather jacket is going to do a lot more to save me from road rash well, then, you know, whatever fig leaf clothing you could put together, you know, I want to have something substantial, Right? And God does the same thing. He actually takes away, he says, he replaces the fig leaves with uh, an animal skin. Right? And it's two things. One, it's protection. Right? It's just really practical, just like a leather jacket. But secondly, it's foreshadowing. So in the story of the Bible, in the, over, the Bible has many stories in it, but it's one overarching story of the Bible. In the story of the Bible, there's lots of foreshadowing. Where if you read the whole story, and then you read it again, you might start picking up on it and go, oh, oh, because that's coming, and I know it's coming, that that was like a hint of what was to come. And I think the animal skin is a foreshadowing of what's to come. Basically, God is sending a message to them. He's saying, to cover over sin will require the shedding of another's blood. And so there was an animal that died so that they could be clothed, or maybe a few animals, I'm not sure. To cover over sin will require the shedding of another's blood. Now, I want to take you to another scene. Away from the Garden of Eden, we'll go forward hundreds of years. And God is revealing himself to the world through the nation of Israel. There's a problem, though. They are enslaved in Egypt. So they're a nation of slaves and not living in their own land. and, and, and 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 God wants to bring them out of Egypt, out of their slavery. Of course, the problem gets worse because Pharaoh is a powerful ruler of Egypt and he won't let them go. And God brings a plague after plague after plague, nine of them. And Pharaoh continues to harden his heart and said, no, I'm not going to let them go. And so then the, the biggest one is coming, the big plague, the plague of death of the firstborn, the tenth of the ten plagues. And it's coming and God gives, through Moses, specific instructions to the Israelites in order for you not to experience what the, the plague of death that's about to come, 
You need to follow my instructions. And this is it. You need to find a lamb without defect. And you need to, um, just like any in a farming society, people do that. You, know, you, you kill the lamb, you cook the lamb, you eat the meat, but save some of the blood and apply it to the doorposts of your house. And then when the plague of death comes, it won't come to your house, it will pass over you. Does anyone know what that uh, celebration is called today? <laughs> Passover, yeah, I just totally gave it away, didn't I? It's still celebrated today, right? It's still celebrated to this very day. I always in the springtime, and it's about a week long. And uh, hundreds of years later, Jesus and his disciples are celebrating that feast. They're celebrating the Passover. They're celebrating that to cover over sins, it's a little bit more clear now, to cover over sins and to have death pass over us will require the shedding of a lamb without defect. So Jesus and his disciples are having that, and Jesus knows that in this Passover week, he will be crucified. And so there's all sorts of symbolic things in the Passover meal, and Jesus introduces two new symbols. And it's the symbol of bread and wine. And he says, in the future, you're going to use these symbols when you come together in remembrance of me. This is my body, the bread, broken for you. This is my blood, the wine, spilled on your behalf. And so Jesus takes this thing that's already, that they knew in the garden, they, they knew some sort, or they didn't know, but there's a foreshadowing there that it was going to take the shedding of another's blood to cover over sin. And then, and then oh, it's not just anyone's blood. It's got to be a lamb without defect. That's what the Passover updated them with. And then now it becomes even clearer. Who is that lamb without defect? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. You know, John the Baptist, when he, first, when he saw Jesus coming to get baptized, he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is before Jesus was crucified, before Jesus even started his public ministry. John the Baptist called it out. Peter, he wrote after Jesus had died, he wrote about how the precious blood of Christ, he says, we were saved by the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And then the Apostle Paul, he wrote, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Everybody around Jesus came to understand the Passover in a whole new way. They came to understand that Jesus was that lamb. And God, this was the way that God provided. He provided this for us to come back into relationship. John 14, 6 says, Jesus, this is Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4, 12 Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So that's all God's part. He wants to be in a relationship, and he provided a way to be in a relationship with us. What's our part? You know, there's a young guy who came to Jesus, and there's lots of times in the Bible where people are asking the question we're asking today. How do you come into a relationship with God? And he was asking basically that question. Uh, he used different words, but it's basically the same question. And he, he, he comes to Jesus, 
And this is what he, he says. I'm reading out of Mark 10, 17 to 22. It says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Or how do I get into relationship with God forever? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Now, it's interesting. Jesus didn't jump to answer his question first. First, he, he, he jumped to talk about something else. You've called me a good teacher. But let's be clear. Nobody is good or nobody is perfectly good except God alone. In our culture, we, have, we struggle with this because I think we would just want it to be simple. We want our world to be good people and bad people because that's simpler, right? Well, that politician, he's good. And that one, he's bad, right? Or that is a good neighbor and that's a bad neighbor. Or that, we want people to be in just so, such simple categories, but it's not true because you find people, even people who, who mostly you'd say they're bad, sometimes do self-sacrificing, loving, or kind things. So it sort of breaks the, the model. And then some people who do incredibly good things, so much so that people put them on a pedestal and say, they are a great hero of our culture. Whenever that happens, have you noticed this? As soon as it happens, somebody's on social media digging up a tweet from 10 years ago and saying, but they said this. They're not all good. Or they did that. Or here's their track record on this. The reality is we're a mixed bag of motivations. We can be self-sacrificing. God has created us in his image, and we can do incredible things. We can be creative. We can be loving. We can, it's just a lot of good things. But we can also do great evil. And we find that war in us. Apostle Paul said, the good I want to do, I don't do. Who will save me from this, this, this dynamic in my life of not being able to even follow through on the things I know are right? This internal war and this internal struggle. So Jesus says, good teacher. You're, he's pointing out two things. One, he's right. He, Jesus is a good teacher. Not the way that the young man has said it, though. Jesus is perfectly sinless. He's perfectly good. He's good because he's God. And so only God is perfectly good. And he's pointing that out to him. And then the other thing is he's pointing out the condition of humanity. That we are not. We're not perfectly good. So Jesus goes on. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. So he's listing off basically about half of the Ten Commandments, roughly. And then the, the man responds, Teacher, all these things I've kept since I was a boy. Which... I have disbelief about that statement, right? But still, that's a pretty bold statement. I'm acing these things. So do I, get eternal, do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus looked at him and loved him. I, you know, I really appreciated that when I read that this week because I thought, even if you're lying to God, even if you're trying to Put, even if you're trying to put a mask on and say I'm better than I really am, even if you're, even if you're, you're trying to hide with your words, you're using them to deceive. Can you believe that even in that moment, God can look at you and love you? That's amazing. That's amazing. I just thought, wow, he is so gracious. So Jesus looked at him and loved him. And he says, one thing you lack, 
Now, I don't think one thing you lack is the all-encompassing statement that he only has one wrong thing in his life. I don't believe that. But I think Jesus is using this to, to pinpoint something that will expose the greater condition. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. Jesus had nailed him, absolutely nailed him where he was. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. I noticed in the list of Ten Commandment-ish statements that Jesus listed for him, he didn't list the first one, which is, Thou shalt have no other God before me, no other God but God. And I think that's what Jesus was getting at with this, because money can be a powerful God in our lives. And I think it was in his life. When he had to choose between following Jesus and having great wealth, he, he couldn't give it up. It was ultimate. It was more important than Jesus was. And uh, I'm not saying that because of this passage, everyone has to do exactly these actions, right? But anytime something looms large in your life bigger than God or becomes ultimate when God should be, and you're a follower of Jesus, he's going to ask you about that very area. All must be surrendered to Jesus if you're his follower. That's the reality of, of what, what he calls us to, right? And for this young man, he was pointing out that his life was not surrendered to God. He asked he had some good performance in some areas, but he was not good. He was still in the same sinful condition that all of us are in. Perfect goodness is not something we can offer to God because we're born under the power of sin. And going our own way is not just an action that we have done. It's our inborn tendency. It's an ongoing influence in us. If this was the only way to be right with God, perfect, perfect goodness, that would be bad news because none of us would qualify. But thankfully, God provided another way. And Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, this is our key verse for the week, really spells out some of the details of it. It says, For it is by grace you've been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Um, Christianity doesn't really have room for boasting in what you've done. If you say, well, ah, man, I, I do all these things, I chose to follow God, and then I do all these things, look at me. It doesn't really work like that way. Because the reality is, all of us who come to, to, to God, we come on the basis of the reality of knowing that I can't do anything that can earn my ultimate approval with God. I can't. I have a sin nature in me that, that prevents that from being a possibility. Right? So if it was just up, do good works, if that was the answer to how do you have a relationship with God, and it was the only answer, well, I, I mean, Jesus was perfectly sinless, but no one else has ever been. So doing, living good or perfectly good is not an option that we can have. And so when you, if, even if you knew, like many places in the Bible, it talks about being perfect, like God is perfect. But yes, then we back off and say, but in my own strength, in my own ability, I can't. And I won't be able to do that. So that's good news when we read, it's by grace you've been saved. Grace is getting uh, God's forgiveness without earning it. It's grace. If you've ever received things in your life that you didn't earn, that's grace. So, you know, 
I didn't earn the welcome I got into Keith and Nancy's house. I didn't earn helping myself to their fridge. That was grace, grace, and more grace, right? So if you get something you didn't deserve, it's, it's grace. But it comes through faith. It comes through faith. How do you access this grace, this free gift of God? It comes through faith. It comes in trusting in what Jesus has done for you. In Acts 2, 36 to 38, we have uh, Peter, and he's talking to people who want to know how to come into relationship with God. So he says, he's just, I'll tell you the last bit of what he said to them. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, ooh, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? What do I do? How can we have a relationship with God? How can we inherit eternal life? How, how can we get out under this guilt of having killed the Messiah? And Peter replied, Repent. Change your mind. Change your life. Change your behavior. Change everything. Turn 180 degrees and be baptized. Go public with your faith. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. So our sins need forgiveness. And then he says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit to guide you and lead you and empower you in your life to come. Romans 10, 9 to 10. Paul talks about an internal decision and an external expression. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart you believe and are justified. And it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So we have two symbols that tie directly to this. The one is baptism, right? Getting Just like Jesus was baptized and, and requires for his followers to be baptized. If you give your life to Christ, then the, one of the big responses is to go public with that. So there's an internal reality, and we just read about it, right? Believe in your heart that, that God raised him from the dead, Okay? And you'll be saved. So let me just paraphrase that slightly to make it clear. What Jesus did for us on the cross was necessary. That's one of the realities we come to grips with, right? I'm a sinner and I need a savior. I have a sin condition that poisons my relationship with God and it's poisoning relationships with other people as well. And often dominates my life. I know what Paul is talking about when he talks about it being like a slavery. There are things in my life that I do and I don't want to do and I keep, it's compulsive it seems. So there's a power at work in my life that needs to be broken. I need to be forgiven for my sin but I also need the power of sin broken in my life and what Jesus did on the cross not only makes it possible for me to be forgiven my sin taken on him his perfect obedience and righteousness given to me but not only can your sin be forgiven the power of sin can be broken over your life so that sin is no longer your master but Jesus is and he's not the kind of master that enslaves he liberates. So, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's that whole package. Jesus' perfect life, his, his sacrificial death on our part, and then his resurrection from the dead. Believe that that was necessary for you. That's 
the first part. It's an internal, it's an internal reality of belief. Of saying yes in your heart. I need the, the forgiveness that God offers. I need the leadership. I need his power to bro- break me free from the shackles of sin. And then there's a, an, an external expression. There's declaring with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Professing your faith. And uh, baptism is part of that profession where we declare, I belong to Jesus. That's, who I, that's whose I am. He is my Lord and Savior. He's ultimate in my life. And uh, all other loves, all other affections have to take a number after him because he's ultimate. Today, if you're, if you're hearing what I'm saying and maybe you haven't made that declaration or maybe you're feeling even faith welling up within your heart right now as we just talk about these things, today could be the day where you just really express that to God and say, God, I'm, I'm, the belief is rising in me that what you did for me on the cross is exactly what I need to deal with my own sin condition in my life. And as a result of that, that sep- sin is dealt with and death is dealt with too. God gives us the promise that, he'll, that eternity with him is ours because of our faith, because of his grace, which is activated by the belief rising up within us in him. So I'm going to invite you at this very end, I'm going to invite you to pray with me a prayer of commitment. We use it quite a bit here at Hillcrest. It can be a prayer you would pray every day of your life, but it also could be the first prayer that you would pray on starting a brand new journey with God as his follower. So it's a prayer of commitment to him. Let's just, I'd ask you, all of you who are here today, just to repeat it with me, whether you're praying it just as a daily prayer, or if it's a first-time prayer uh, of commitment to Christ, then join us as well. Dear Father, thank you that you love me and sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sin. I put my trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Help me live a life that honors you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to celebrate communion together. I'm going to probably just ask if one of the guest services could get me a communion cup. I forgot to bring one up, so if someone can... That's great. Thanks. Dave's on the job there. But I'd like you to stand with me this morning as we we celebrate what we've been talking about all morning. And that is that God's reconciliation plan. Yeah, please stand. God's reconciliation plan to bring us into right relationship with him. So let's take this symbol of his body. Take the symbol of his body broken for us and let's do this in remembrance of him. Let's take it together.
Now let's just take the symbol of his blood. And remember, the covering of our sin was not possible without the shedding of another's blood. A lamb without defect. That's what we learned from Passover. And that lamb was Jesus. That's what we learn from his crucifixion and resurrection. Let's take it together. Lord, we thank you for this whole plan that you've rolled out. You go, it seems like there's no end. You wouldn't go to bring us back into relationship. And I thank you for uh, making it possible. You, there was a possibility for us to reject you at the beginning. And now the possibility to accept you and embrace you is also ours. So we thank you, Lord, that uh, loving you is is something that we can do and that we can experience your love for all of eternity. So Lord, we thank you for your death. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for the way that you've worked in human history uh, to bring us back to the garden with you, back into relationship with you. And Lord, we just thank you that you've won this for us on the cross. Lord, I ask one more thing. Because of what you've done on the cross and you've broken the authority of sin over our lives, help us to not only know that, but to fully embrace that. Sin is no longer our master, but you are. Lord, I pray that empowers us in our struggle with sin. It empowers us in our, in our, our fighting spiritually that we are not subservient to sin anymore. But we're your servants. And uh, I pray that we'd experience in this season, in this journey, we'd experience a greater and greater transformation in our lives. That old sin habits that had dominated for far too long would weaken and lose their grip as we begin to declare more and more who we are in you. And... uh, and not just settle for defeat or, or believe that uh, these things will always win. Lord, we're believing in great faith for your leadership and your guidance to be transformative in our lives. Thank you that you say you will always be with us. You'll never leave us nor forsake us. We're going to hang on to that in this season. In your name, amen. Amen. God bless you.